Hello and welcome to Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where the editors of Health Affairs talk about the most pressing health policy news of the week. I'm Marianne Amos. And I'm Rob Lott. Before we get started, we wanted to direct listeners to our latest Ahead of Print article, which looks at food insecurity among low-income Asian Americans living in California. The lead author is Milky Vu, who was in the 2022 cohort of our Health Equity Fellowship for Trainees program. So congratulations, uh, Milky Vu, and um, listeners should find her article on our website. We'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, we also wanted to let listeners know that for the upcoming October issue of the journal, Tackling Structural Racism in Health, eight authors filmed a video version of their article's abstract. And we've also published two video trailers on the issue on our Racism and Health topic page. So check the show notes or our YouTube channel to watch these videos. They're all open access, just like the corresponding articles. And now on to this week's topic. I have to admit it might induce a bit of whiplash. (laughs) First, uh, new data were released last week about child poverty. And here's what we learned. In 2021, child poverty dropped significantly to 5.2%, representing 3.8 million children. So that's still a lot, but it was a record low. Right, Marianne. Uh, It's quite an achievement, and many attributed it to the expansion of the child tax credit that temporarily took effect in 2021 as part of the American Rescue Plan Act. Through this expansion, families across the country received monthly payments of several hundred dollars per child without being subject to income requirements that had in the past prevented people earning little or no income from receiving the tax credit. Hey, Rob, I remember receiving this tax credit during the pandemic, and it was one of those rare bright spots in what was really a difficult time, and I think many people felt the same way. Yeah, same here. Uh, So the tax credit was only in effect for 2021. Uh, despite the efforts of many legislators and the president to make it permanent. Uh, Marianne, what happened when it expired? Well, in 2022, there was no child tax credit. And according to this new data from the Census Bureau, the child poverty rate jumped up significantly to 12.4%. And that was an increase of 139%. And it's actually Yikes. the steepest increase in history. Yikes is right, Rob. <laughs> um, an article in Vox by Ocean Jarrow put it well, so I want to share a brief quote. Uh, He wrote, the child poverty rate was like a loaded spring being held down by pandemic era welfare programs. Release the spring or let the expanded child tax credit expire as Congress did. And of course, it will shoot right back up. So um, that writer and many other writers and commentators have really been expressing outrage and dismay about the state of affairs. And for good reason, I would say. That's right. And uh, we've heard other not so great news about children's health recently, unfortunately, this time regarding the Medicaid unwinding. That's right. So just as a quick reminder, at the beginning of the pandemic, the federal government struck a deal with the states. It said, we will enhance our federal Medicaid matching funds in exchange for the states implementing a policy of continuous enrollment. Now, that's essentially an agreement not to kick anyone off Medicaid during the pandemic. And uh, lo and behold, Marianne, with that policy in place, Medicaid enrollment grew. It grew big. 23.3 million uh, new enrollees to nearly 95 million total from February 2020 to the end of March 2023. That's according to 
the Kaiser Family Foundation, which has a, a really helpful uh, Medicaid unwinding tracker. And of those new enrollees, 7.3 million were children under 19. So Marianne, take a step back and remember, you know, this period in time, it wasn't too long ago, but society as a whole really felt pretty fragile. Our economy was really in free fall. So many families were living on the edge and could have tipped into poverty, homelessness, and been forced to go without coverage and essential care. And then in the middle of all that, Congress actually took action with this targeted step and remarkably strengthened the safety net. Right. I mean, it's a policy that really seemed to do what it was intended to do, but it was temporary. Of course. Are you seeing a trend here, Rob? <laughs> the provision ended on March 31st, 2023, which is when states could begin the process of disenrolling Medicaid beneficiaries for all the reasons that people typically lose coverage. Everything from a change in their status and eligibility to a shift in a family's income level to simple paperwork errors. Yeah, and this process is being called, appropriately, I suppose, the unwinding. And here we are about six months in and it's playing out exactly as expected. As of September 26th, at least 7.5 million Medicaid enrollees have been disenrolled, again, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And of those, 73% have been disenrolled for procedural reasons. And that's really worrying because if you're disenrolled for procedural reasons, Marianne, you mentioned paperwork, that's a big part of it, but also cases where it might be as simple as the state not having the wrong address on file for you or out-of-date data, really, you know, basic bureaucratic stuff. In those cases, it might mean you may actually still be eligible for coverage even while you're being kicked off. Yeah, it's it's really become a mess. And I imagine since we're talking about Medicaid, of course, the levels of messiness probably vary by state. Yes, they definitely do. Um, some states actively sought to bounce people they expected were no longer eligible, whereas others have been going out of their way to keep people on the rolls using so-called ex parte renewals. These are essentially administrative actions verifying continued eligibility with the available data sources, such as um, state wage records, for example, and they'd use that information to renew folks automatically. But this administrative approach is a bit of a double-edged sword. Last month, CMS realized that some states conducting these administrative reviews were actually removing some people based on uh, their data's indications of household income, right? So this makes sense, but doesn't actually account for the reality that different members of a household may have different Medicaid eligibility thresholds. In particular, we're talking about children that are eligible for Medicaid at a higher level than adults. And as a result of this disconnect, a bunch of kids were actually automatically disenrolled despite still actually qualifying for Medicaid coverage. The latest reporting suggests that this has been an issue in at least 30 states, with as many as 500,000 people erroneously disenrolled, and a big proportion of them were children. Pennsylvania and Nevada were among the worst offenders, each reporting that they screwed this process up with more than 100,000 individuals. Oh, exactly, Marianne. This is not a minor issue. Uh, most states are in the process of correcting these errors, or at least they've put a pause on disenrollments until they put in place uh, new and better systems. And while we can hope this particular problem may sort of be fixed, it really does illustrate that when major policy shifts collide with major bureaucratic undertakings, 
a lot of individuals uh, are likely to fall through the cracks and suffer. Often it's the most vulnerable, and among them, again, are the kids. And now to make matters worse, we have another example of those forces at play in the form of a likely government shutdown starting October 1st, which will impact the ability of CMS to do a number of things, including managing the Medicaid unwinding process and providing states with technical assistance to address those issues you just mentioned. So the Office of Management and Budget creates contingency plans for all departments of the federal government in the case of a shutdown. And the plan for the Department of Health and Human Services, which includes CMS, says that about 58% of workers will continue to work and 42% will be furloughed. Now, for CMS specifically, it looks like about half of workers will be furloughed. Do we know what other specific activities might be reduced or halted temporarily while the shutdown goes on? Yes, I'll just mention a few here. Um, Medicare and Social Security payments will continue without interruption as their funding doesn't need congressional approval. But there are other programs that get discretionary funding that does need congressional approval. And that's programs like the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, the OMB contingency plan for HHS does make clear that, quote, HHS's main priority in the absence of an enacted annual appropriation is to protect the health of Americans. So here's hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's true that we don't know if a shutdown will happen for sure. We're uh, recording this on September 28th. So, uh, got a few days to close the deal. It's entirely possible that everything will get sorted out, right? I mean, sure, sure. But (laughs) (laughs) even if the shutdown is averted, things are unfortunately not really going to change for the better for American children anytime soon. Yeah, sadly true, uh, Marianne. I feel bad this episode was such a bummer, but there's a lot going on. And I I think it was important to draw the connections between uh, a lot of these different pieces. And we're nearly out of time, but I do maybe want to close with a, a moment of optimism by pointing listeners to a recent health affairs article by Charles Bruner and Maxine Hayes, which suggests that health reform's current priorities may be somewhat misplaced especially with its focus on value-based care and meeting the triple aim among populations experiencing adverse health conditions and incurring high medical costs. What the authors argue is that that is not enough. Just as important is focusing on the healthy development of children, and that requires long-term, like really long-term investment. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But who's going to take this on, I think, is my question. So, Rob, who are the authors saying should be leading this shift? Yeah, fair question, Marianne. And uh, the authors point to our old friends in the federal government, not exactly instilling a lot of confidence these days, but they suggest that no one really can make this happen except the feds. And uh, here's a key quote from the piece. They say, quote, the federal government is poised to lead this work by building upon current actions and policy proposals to do so in Medicaid, through the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, and in public and community health. Yeah, I think that sounds like a way forward, and maybe there's a little bit of hope in that sentiment. Yeah, and there's a lot more detail in the piece. Uh, Readers should definitely check it out, especially if they're looking for a way out of the mess that we've been discussing here today. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Rob. And on that note, let's wrap up. Thanks to everyone listening. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to Health Affairs This Week wherever you get your podcasts. 
and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Rob. Take care, Marianne.